Hello, everyone, and welcome to Discern This, a podcast that brings you some insights into global affairs. I'm your host, Jim Clancy. We are into the fourth month of Israel's war with Hamas in Gaza. It continues to kill or wound thousands of Palestinians, while Israeli media report 137 hostages remain held by Hamas inside Gaza. More than 27,000 Palestinians have been killed thus far, most of them civilians. There's a huge toll of women and children. People on all sides are waiting and watching to see if diplomacy and the case before the International Court of Justice will push the warring parties toward a ceasefire. Let's get some perspective on all of this. And we are happy to be joined by Zaha Hassan. She is a human rights lawyer. She has done research. She's based in Washington, D.C., and she's been actively working within the Palestinian-Israeli issue for many years. She's a fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Hello and welcome. Thanks for having me, Jim. Many people hope that when South Africa brought its case uh, of genocide before the International Court of Justice, against Israel, it might have pushed everyone toward a ceasefire, but that hasn't happened. How much meaning does that case still have? I mean, the case was hugely important. I mean, think about it. This was a state-to-state complaint, a complaint that directly addressed Israel as a state coming from another country, South Africa, with a lot of experience, uh, with with respect to racial discrimination and structural violence. Uh, and it was about the crime of crimes. You can't get worse than the crime of genocide. Um, so there was a lot of hope, like you say, that this case, um, at least uh, in its provisional request, would get us to a ceasefire. We we didn't get that from the court. We, we got something very, very close um, in terms of uh, stopping the killing. The court didn't say stop the indiscriminate bombing of Palestinians. It said stop the killing. It said that humanitarian assistance needs to be, uh, you know, brought into Gaza effectively and immediately. It said um, that this genocidal language that Israeli officials uh, have been using to talk about the campaign in Gaza needs to stop. And it, you know, it basically, it, to implement this the provisional measures, you would need a ceasefire because there's no way to bring in the kinds of aid that is necessary in Gaza without stopping the fighting. So people could, um, you know, humanitarian workers could be safe and and so that um, there could be some uh, remediation to all that's been destroyed in Gaza so that you can allow for this to happen. But I think what, what we did see with this, uh, with the decision from the International Court of Justice and that this pre- provisional ruling was that there was a changing of the framing around what Israel's doing in Gaza. Before uh, the ICJ opinion, there was still talk of Israel's self-defense and, you know, maybe Israel was going beyond bounds in some cases, but the general frame was one around Israel's right to self-defense. And I think what the International Court of Justice did was to to recast that in terms of this um, violence towards Palestinians as a group, the intentional killing of Palestinians as a group. Um, and, and that was really important to, to really change the frame in that way. And I think for a lot of um, different audiences, it'll have different impacts. I know 
There are members of Congress that are deeply concerned about the weapons transfers, and they're deeply concerned about U.S. complicity, um, uh, given that the International Court of Justice said there is a plausible case of genocide taking place. So there's there's much more pause with, with respect to making sure that the U.S. is not complicit among members of Congress, at least, and I think also within the administration, though we're not seeing the effects of that yet. Um, but, you know, we're also seeing um, civil society much emboldened by this uh, confirmation of what they had been saying uh, for a while, that what it appears to be happening in Gaza appears to be a genocide. And so I think it will continue to embolden civil society in this way. And just today, we actually have a report of a Japanese company, Itochu. It's a has an aviation unit that's breaking off um, its cooperation with an Israeli company, Elbit Systems, taking into consideration, they say, um, of the ICJ order. So I think there will continue to be these effects um, as as we continue to see Israel uh, prosecute its campaign in Gaza. Well, the U.S. has, of course, staunchly supported Israel's right to defend itself, as it says, after the horrific October 7th attacks. And, you know, it too, though, has to be very careful because it is the main supplier, as you pointed out, of the weaponry that's pouring uh, into Israel and the bombs being dropped on civilians. Absolutely. I mean, the U.S. is the principal supplier. They are uh, not just providing the weaponry, uh, which most of Israel's weapons are uh, either U.S. funded or U.S. weapons, um, but it's also providing Israel with a diplomatic cover to continue to prosecute the war. It's it's you know blocking Security Council resolutions around a ceasefire. It's engaged with uh, other countries, encouraging them to to stay by the U.S.'s uh, line when it comes to Israel. So. It, it carries a lot of water for Israel around what's taking place in Gaza. And you you definitely can start to, to see now some daylight between the U.S. and Israel. I think from the very beginning of, uh, you know, this uh, Gaza, Hamas uh, and Israel conflict, um, there was this uh, approach that the Biden administration took, which was to really embrace Netanyahu and say, you know, the U.S. is with you and you saw the U.S. participating in, ca- in war cabinet uh, meetings with Israeli uh, officials, really taking on this position that the U.S. is a partner with Israel in the prosecution of um, the campaign in Gaza. But I think you're starting to see much more daylight, much more criticism of Netanyahu. We're hearing reports of uh, President Biden really having some strong words for Netanyahu, because, you know, the president is taking a lot of flack internally in the United States with different constituencies that he needs um, to win the next election. But he's also hearing it from within his own administration. He's hearing it from civil servants outside in in Europe and elsewhere and diplomats um, uh, all over the world that, you know, this cannot continue in this way. This, you know, there needs to be an end and there needs to be some sort of clarity on exactly what is the what is the objective here i think we've all lost sight of you know this idea that the idea it was to you know degrade hamas and to obliterate hamas we now understand that that isn't uh 
probably going to be something that the Israelis can achieve. So then the question is, what what exactly is the the goal? And because it looks a lot like um, it's one in which uh, the target is aimed at uh, civilians and civilian infrastructure in Gaza, making it impossible for uh, Palestinians to live as a community in, in Gaza. Well, and that's you know precisely what the Palestinians uh, who are you know looking on, uh, say from the West Bank, are seeing. We talked to several of them, and they indicate that clearly they're making Gaza unlivable uh, for the Palestinians that remain there. While you have government figures and others openly talking about, well, the rest of the world should take in these. They, they should take these Palestinians off of our hands. The Biden administration, obviously, as you noted, concerned about the effect that it's having on his election chances. Uh, he's in a tight race. It looks like he's going to be coming up against Donald Trump once again. But the Arab, the Muslim vote, particularly in places like Michigan, uh, sending a message saying, we're not going to automatically give you our vote. So Joe Biden comes out and says, you know what, Palestinian statehood. Uh, and he's dangling the prospect of that. But at the same time, it's conditional. It comes down the road. It's deferred. And Palestinians have been through that before. Yeah. And, you know, you really can't uh, you can't use uh, the possibility of uh a Palestinian state as a substitute for stopping the bombing in Gaza, for stopping the killing in Gaza. I mean, that's that uh, uh, the question of a political solution. Definitely, we should keep our eye on that uh, and and not lose sight of the fact that the reason why we have this cyclical es ex uh, <laughs> uh, escalations and violence in Gaza is because we don't have a political solution, one based on international law and a consensus around um, the two-state solution or any political solution that would guarantee the rights um, of Palestinians. Uh, but, but we also have to bear in mind that we're still in the middle of what the International Court of Justice has said is a plausible genocide. And so the priority should be on stopping the killing, stopping the bombing, and preventing the forced displacement of you know, over 2 million people. We're at the point now where the desperation is so great that, you know, we're already seeing signs of wasting, signs of starvation. And this is in a very young population. Half the population are children. And um, having them go for long periods of time without sufficient uh, nutrition will have long-term impacts on them. Going for long periods of time where people have you know, catastrophic injuries, lost limbs, uh, now disease setting in and not having medical care um, will have consequences for those who make it uh, to the end of the campaign, Israel's campaign alive. It will have long-term psychosocial impacts on the people. So the idea that we're going to sit around and talk about, you know, regional integration expanding Abraham Accords and Palestinian statehood while we do nothing to stop what's continuing in Gaza is just abhorrent. And I think for most um, Arab Americans, Muslim Americans in this country, that is really the priority. And that's why so many of them are just um, so angry, um, to be frank, with the Biden administration, because it's it isn't seeing um, Palestinians as um, humans as 
valued humans that deserve to live um, in safety and um, in peace. And so I think we saw that with the president's visit to Michigan, you know, the Arab American community did not want to meet with him. They were deeply offended that, you know, it took, um, you know, him on the election trail, you know, to basically want to talk to to them. Um, and it just felt very, as they said in, in a letter to him, very performative. Um, and to, exactly. Well, and, I mean, it was all about the election. It was all about their votes supporting him. And meantime, there are immediate concerns. In the first week uh, of February, there's been, what, more than 100 children that have gone from Gaza, some other Palestinians as well. They've gone to Italy, and they're getting some treatment there. But there's questions whether Israel is even going to let some of those people back. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're already hearing talk from Israeli um, officials about you know, rebuilding settlements in Gaza. So, I mean, if they're already putting down uh, plans and holding conferences to talk about the recolonization of Gaza with Jewish settlers, there is a huge risk that um, Palestinians that are forced out, whether it's because they need medical treatment or because of the starvation that they're experiencing and the pressure that's on Egypt to allow Palestinians in to, to save them, essentially, um, there is a, a huge fear that um, Palestinians won't be allowed. And, and I think it's a very legitimate fear, given Palestinian history with ongoing displacement um, since 1948. Well, and a reminder that there's more than 100 Israelis being held by Hamas in there. Their families are very upset because they see the lack of humanitarian aid as affecting them as well. Everyone is affected by this that is in Gaza right now. That's what's and so infuriating. That. Yeah, that's what's so infuriating. I mean, the hostages are just at risk of the bombing, uh, of the destruction. They're just at, at, as, at, as at risk with starvation as the Palestinians living there. So how this translates into responsible strategy on the Israeli part, if the goal is to destroy Hamas, as they say, how this makes any sense um, uh, for the Israeli hostages, let alone the Palestinians who've been dying in the now tens of thousands. You know, some have made the point that if the United States, if the Biden administration was really serious about ending this conflict, getting a, a ceasefire, making the parties come to some kind of a, a, a settlement, it could simply cut off the arms. And it shows no willingness to do that. In fact, if, if anything, it, it seems that the Biden administration is doing everything possible to keep that flow of arms moving. I mean, as a Israeli former uh, major general in the Israeli army said, um, you know, all the U.S. would have to do is just shut the tap off on the on the munitions to Israel and Israel would have to stop um, the bombing of Gaza because it's that dependent on uh, U.S. arms, uh, even if even if the U.S. didn't stop. Um, arming, if they just slowed it down to make it difficult for Israel to continue at the pace, I mean, that would be something. But it's not been willing to do that. Um, again, it's sticking to the line that Israel has this right to eliminate um, Hamas uh, as it needs to uh, without, you know, it's seemingly regard for the consequences on the Palestinian side of the ledger. And so, um, 
you know, it's not a question of, of does the U.S. have sufficient leverage over Israel? It has all the leverage. It has the leverage diplomatically in the Security Council. It has the leverage um, with respect to the arms um, that it ships to Israel and resupplies in the middle of this um, uh, campaign. It's just a question of the political will to do it. <clears throat> and the, and it's, it's um, telling that, you know, half of Americans believe um, that the Biden administration is, is uh, not uh, uh, conducting itself in the right way with respect to this um, Israel's uh, war on Gaza. You're able to see this, your, your perspective in this, and you're passionate about it, but you really see a point in time where we've reached an inflection point. I think many Americans are waking up to the fact that the human rights of Palestinians have simply been disregarded for the past 75 years or more. And at no time have we seen a conflict that resulted in this many children losing their lives, losing, you know, really, even the ones that survive have lost their lives. They've lost their education. They, many have lost their parents. They've been orphaned. It's a tragic situation, but sometimes that's what it takes to wake people up. I definitely, I definitely see that there's a huge change that's happening in the U.S., but not just in the U.S., around the world with this realization of, um, you know, what's happening in Israel-Palestine. It's, um, you see it in terms of the polling in the U.S. Uh, and the way in which Democrats have, in particular, have been really horrified by um, the disregard for Palestinian life. You see it in terms of those in the Biden administration, civil servants that are expressing their outrage at the failure of the administration to take account of what they call a genocide. Um, you see it in terms of the Biden campaign staff, uh, former campaign staff that are also pushing the Biden administration and letting them know that this can't stand. I mean, I, you know, it's in every, every institution in the U.S., um, local governments. I mean, Chicago passed a resolution calling for a ceasefire. I mean, you're starting to see uh, everywhere you turn, people just horrified by the idea that, you know, something terrible is happening right now where, where we don't have um, effective institutions to to, you know, enforce kind of normative behavior. And not only that, but the one country that that purports to be that that force for good internationally um, that helps, um, you know, work towards respect for international law and multilateral institutions is that is the actual state that's blocking a ceasefire is the state that's allowing uh, this genocide to take place in um, in Gaza, and so I think for a lot of people, it's not you know it's not just um, learning about the Palestinian issue that's um, driving uh, sort of this awakening. It's also just the sphere of where is this going to lead us if we no longer have institutions like the UN that can speak with some kind of moral authority and to to stop you know international conflicts like this if we don't if we can't rely on the US to be that force um to stop something like a genocide taking place where does that leave us where does that leave anybody i mean we are all less safe 
in a world in which we don't have these kinds of institutions and norms? Well, we look at it and we see the reality on the ground. And I think a lot of people are rethinking things. But at the same time, and maybe there's a legal opinion here, we, we hear the, this notion that Israel is being singled out, that this, these standards aren't applied to others, it's being unfairly criticized for simply defending itself. How much of a legal standing does that have? You know, I, I, this has always been the, the refrain that this is about Israel's security and, um, you know, that Israel's only reacting to, uh, to Palestinian violence perpetrated against Israelis and Israeli civilians. I think this, um, you know, the, the Gaza-Israel uh, uh, war that's been going on now for almost four months has really turned that narrative on its head. Like I said at the top of this uh, of our conversation, um, you know, it's really hard to maintain this idea of self-defense when you see entire neighborhoods that have been just control bombed so that the entire neighborhood's destroyed, or you see the complete destruction of, you know, 60 to 70% of the housing stock in Gaza. When you see that, you know, the weight of two nuclear bombs has been dropped on a territory that's twice the size of Washington, D.C. When you think about the fact that within this short period of time, um, you have 27,000 people killed, the majority of whom are women and children. I mean, it really belies this idea of self-defense and Israeli security when you see that really the vast uh, uh, casualties that have taken place are just civilians, just people trying to live their lives and unable to do so because for the last 16, 17 years, they've been trapped um, in the Gaza Strip, unable to have normal um, economic activity, unable to travel in and out, unable to to have basic uh, supplies, you know, that aren't, um, you know, uh, subject to the Israeli veto of whether they can have certain foods in the country uh, imported. I mean, it's it's to that level of control that they've been living um, their lives for the last um, 17 years under the strict siege. But really, for as long as, you know, uh, since 1948, really, because most of the population of Gaza are refugees uh, and their descendants. And so this, you know, it's a, you know, the security argument can only take you so far and you have to completely disregard the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in order to, you know, believe that. There's something much more going on here, and it's about, um, you know, forced displacement of a population in favor of another population. And, you know, that's called ethnic cleansing. That's called, um, you know, a war crime. And that needs to be called out. And we need to if we're thinking about political solutions, we have to know exactly what the problem is in order to move uh, past it. Well, you, you've talked about congressmen, senators, others. They're listening. They're paying attention. Uh, they don't like what they see, you know, this whole concept of the indispensable nation. Frankly, I mean, the U.S. record for handling tragedies in the Middle East, I don't know how much worse it could get, but this is a case in point where, you know, Countries like Russia, China, 
and others that are trying to stare down the United States and its influence in the region really have an opportunity to point to and say, is this the kind of indispensable nation mediator that you really need to solve your problems? And the message is being heard clearly in the Southern hemispheres. Definitely. I mean, the global South has been, um, you know, really at the forefront of calling out this. I mean, when you think about South Africa being the, the agent for civilians for Palestinian civilians to be able to save uh, lives. Uh, It's not the United States that's at the ICJ. You know, it's not the, uh, you know, uh, the U.S. leading for ceasefire resolutions um, in the ways that they would for uh, for other countries uh, experiencing aggression by another country. Uh, And I'm thinking, obviously, of the Ukraine-Russia conflict here. So, you know, this is really going to cripple the United States' ability to pursue their agenda around, um, you know, supporting, uh, you know, stronger multilateral institutions, supporting the rules-based international order, supporting international law. It's going to make it that much tougher for the U.S. to be credible among the global South, um, even among the Europeans um, who, who are obviously very horrified as well by what's happening, um, you know, in in uh, Gaza. So I think, you know, this isn't, you know, this isn't just a question of a of a moral issue. Uh, it is very much so that first and foremost, but it's also an issue of how does this serve the U.S. national interest? How does this policy serve the U.S. Uh, national security strategy that was laid out uh early on by the Biden administration that talked about centering human rights, centering uh, international law and and um, our institutions that uphold those things. It really makes it much harder for the U.S. to be that that credible voice uh, internationally. And it's got Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu def- openly defying the Biden administration. One of the things that uh, Mr. Biden has put forward is that he wants to see a renewed, refurbished Palestinian Authority step in and handle Gaza when all of this is over and the dust begins to settle. It may be too soon for us to even think about that, but you've worked with the Palestinian Authority. What are the things that they need to do, and why has it taken 30 years or more to to try to get it done? Well, first of all, Netanyahu has never been interested in... um you know, a Palestinian state and definitely has come on record saying he will not support a Palestinian authority uh, taking over Gaza. He would actually, um, you know, like to see uh, when he talks about reforming the Palestinian uh, authority, he's not talking about, um, you know, a Palestinian authority that's that's uh, legitimate to its people, credible to its people, um, and one that's able to pursue a two-state solution. He's talking about a Palestinian leadership that will be uh, willing to um, accept the status quo as Israel defines it. When they met in Madrid in, what was that, 93? Uh, I just, I was standing outside the conference where everybody was speaking and there were you know, peacemakers were coming out of all corners. And I went outside and there was a lone man standing in a courtyard, pounding his foot 
into the pavement, into the sidewalk, in a large courtyard, all alone, and muttering to himself. And I walked up to him and I said, Beepy, what's wrong? <laughs> you know, because he was, it looked like he was having an apoplectic fit. And he says, all of this, all of this must be stopped, this whole peace thing. And he's made good on that through the years. Uh -huh. He has successfully blocked the entire peace movement. I mean, he's quite proud of that. I mean, he, we've heard him say uh, recently that, you know, that's he's quite proud of his his record in thwarting a Palestinian state and opposing the two state solution. Um, you know, he at one point sounded like he might be in support of a two state. If you recall, during the Obama administration in 2009, his bar Elon speech that he gave at the university where he said, you know, yes, he would support two states for two people. But first, you know, Palestinians would have to, you know, recognize Israel as a Jewish state. It's not enough to recognize the state of Israel. Palestinians would have to recognize Israel as a Jewish state and forget about refugee return. And then it, he also said that the settlements could not be dismantled and they would have to continue to grow um, and uh, essentially was saying to Palestinians that, one, you will never have a uh, refugee return. Those Palestinian citizens of Israel could face denationalization because, you know, if we ever feel threatened as a Jewish state by the demographics and how they work out for us, you may be stripped of your citizenship and basically told Palestinians living in the occupied territories that, you know what, you know, this is uh, the land of the Jewish people. And if, you know, you're in the way that then, you know, our settlements come first. So that was his rendition of a two state solution. I mean, you can see what kind of game he was playing. Obviously, Palestinians aren't going to recognize Israel as a Jewish state, particularly when Israel has never defined its borders. So this amorphous thing called Israel um, is going to, you know, is is has since it's not defined means that it could very well end up on some you know taking the entire west bank which is what we see right now because netanyahu says that he will never allow for anything but israeli security control over all of uh, gaza and all of the west bank effectively that is annexation of the entirety of the area between the mediterranean sea and the jordan river and that's uh, Netanyahu's idea of uh, a solution doesn't leave much room for Palestinians. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Does it leave much room for people like yourself, Zaha, that that work within the law, saying let's stand up for those rights, those principles that we've all uh, vowed that we represent and we support. Let's really stand up for them in courts of law before the UN, in all of these different venues, how do you keep your optimism that that will work someday? I mean, you know, it's not even just a, a, a human rights issue or a moral issue when you stand up for, for um, humanity. It's also actually good policy, you know, because what if you think about what got us to this point where you have an Israeli uh, government, the most right-wing ultranationalist government in Israel's history that is incredibly racist and, you know, supports this notion of a Jewish supremacy. If you think about how did we get here, it's because we never laid down ground rules, ground rules, you know, that are 
based on um, law and normative behavior. Uh, we allowed Israel to think that if you just go through the motions and uh, of, of this peace process, then we won't we won't be so harsh on your continuing efforts to expand settlements. We won't speak out against you if you participate with Palestinians in negotiations. We'll even provide political cover for you at the UN so that you don't face consequences for your behavior. This was all, you know, basically a, a, a kind of contract that the U.S. and the West had with Israel. Just make, you know, make an effort to participate in these in these kinds of negotiations and we'll be we'll 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 have your back. And so what it did was it just emboldened a right wing. Right. It emboldened a settler movement. And it got us to the point now where we have, you know, 25 percent of the population of the West Bank is, is you know, Israeli settlers who have no intention of of moving because why should they? They have no intention of considering a, a two-state solution because why should they? Who's going to actually force them to um to make you know make those um I want to say concessions, but it's really not con- concessions when you're talking about giving back something that was taken, which you know the land that 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 was taken from Palestinians. But I mean, there there hasn't been that sort of, um, you know, that sort of uh, enforcement of of this kind of normative behavior with Israel. And so that's what got us here. And so, you know, what why I, I believe impunity. it's impunity and why I, I support human rights beyond that it's the moral and right thing to do is it's it is good policy because you have to change the incentive structure that we've created for Israel, where it's so warped that that Israelis think that, you know, we do, you know, we will get away with whatever and uh, we have the U.S. to cover for us. So we'll continue as we have been. You have to change that. And the way to change that is by laying down these rules that we've all accepted to be true as, you know, members of the international community, especially after World War II. I mean, we understood the importance of these rules. And if we want to have the kind of planet that we can live in, um, with some notion of safety and peace. Um, but, you know, we've gotten away from that. There was some glimmer of hope in the beginning of the Biden administration that, that there might be this reprioritization of human rights, of international law. But, um, you know, that went by the wayside pretty quickly uh, after October 7th. What do you blame for this impunity? Why is it being granted? Is it linked to the Israeli lobby? Is it part of the funding of elections? I think, you know, our, I think. What's the source of I impunity? think Israel-Palestine has become a domestic political issue, definitely. It's not just a foreign policy issue. If it was just a foreign policy issue, I think it would be clear what the U.S. national interest is here, um, what our regional interests are. It's, you know, it's definitely not in seeing perpetual conflict in which the U.S. is bogged down in um, having to feel the need to respond to every small proxy group in the region, um, all in defense of an occupation and of a military campaign that's targeting civilians. Obviously, something is wrong here because it doesn't make any sense if it's if you're just looking at it as a foreign policy question. So, uh, yes, it's become a domestic policy issue. You know, Israel-Palestine has entered into the culture wars in the United States, and it's making it a lot harder 
for us to have a sensible, you know, foreign policy because of that. I think that, you know, we are seeing though today, and this is where my optimism you're asking me about comes from, we are starting to see people today really question, really question this, you know, is this really serving us? Is it serving Americans um, to be associated with with what's going on in Gaza? Is it serving us domestically and what our, with our domestic agenda is? Um, if we're spending money abroad in the billions of dollars to help fund a, a war on a civilian population, people are asking these questions. It's, you know, it's not, you know, it's not just uh, policy wonks like me anymore that are talking about Palestine. Um, you know, I had somebody coming in today who was um, repairing a, a microwave and he was telling me that he's been reading about Palestine and um, has become interested in what's going on because he doesn't understand, um, you know, the images he's seeing about what's taking place in Gaza and how the U.S. could be a part of that. So I think, you know, it's it's uh, my, my hope is coming from the fact that as devastating as what's happened in Gaza is. It's really um, been uh, it's laid bare sort of the hypocrisy and the contradictions between our uh, you know stated objectives uh, in our foreign policy and what we're actually being um, called on to support when it comes to Israel Palestine. Zaha, we're going to have to leave it there, but thank you for putting the human rights and all of the legal issues surrounding that in some perspective for all of us. And thanks for your continued optimism too. Thanks for having me, Jim. I really appreciate you talking about this issue and, and um, letting others hear about um, just how devastating and, and, and problematic uh, U.S. policy has been for Palestinians, especially in Gaza right now. And thank you for joining us for Discern This, a podcast that tries to fill in some of the blanks and the gaps in understanding global issues. If you enjoyed this, be sure to follow us here on YouTube or wherever you subscribe. Also, take a look, uh, take a moment to listen to some of the other interviews that we have done and what you can learn there. Thank you all for being with us.